This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Hello. Hello. How's it going, Ryan? I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready for this podcast. All right. We're doing it. We are recording Toxic Masculinity, part one of many. Part one of infinite? Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Part one of many plus like the the 10 episodes we'll have to do on Kirk alone. Yeah. I'm just kidding. You guys won't have to listen to all that. But, <laughs> you know. Unless we decide it's interesting because you all know. that's why we're making this. Today, yes. we are looking at two episodes, one from The Next Generation <laughs> and one from Voyager. Voyager. Cool. So, uh, do you want to take it away with a summary? Galaxy's Child, Season 4, Episode 16 of The Next Generation, which aired March 1991. The Enterprise brings aboard Dr. Leia Brahms, scientist and designer of the Enterprise's engine, to investigate Geordi's modifications. In a previous episode, Geordi created a holodeck program of the original engine, as well as an interactive character based on Dr. Brahms. He has formed an attachment to this character and is excited to meet real-life Leia. As he tells Guinan, he's sure they will become friends. <laughs> After touring engineering, he invites him to plan their agenda for the next day or two. In his quarters, after hours, there he's definitely looking to get busy, setting the lights to low and playing classical guitar, and he's out of uniform. As the evening progresses, she gets uncomfortable and bounces. Later, she tells him she's married. When looking further into Jordy's modifications, she winds up finding his holodeck program. Jordy runs to try to stop her from discovering hollow Brahms, but he's too late. She is creeped out and yells at Jordy about how inappropriate the whole scenario is. Meanwhile, the Enterprise has encountered a spacefaring life form, which they somehow never call a space whale, <laughs> that they accidentally kill. Of course, it's pregnant. They give it a C-section and the baby latches onto the Enterprise to feed. Dr. Brahms and Jordy work together to shake the baby loose, just in time to unite it with other members of its species. After working together to dislodge the baby, Jordy and Leia meet in Ten Forward, where she apologizes for getting angry. They conclude with, we can be friends. So a couple interjections from this episode. Jordy is black and blind, a minority character twice over, uh, and he has a hard time with women. Which also, like, Harry Kim does and Dr. Bashir for a long time. Mm -hmm. All of these, like, minority characters are never getting to be the, like, just suave, debonair, whatever, lady lady killer person. (laughs) I always forget that he's blind. I think I just think he has weird eyes. He's... Well, so he's yeah, he's blind. He has a magic visor. Right. He has a magic visor that lets him see, but not, like human eyes yeah like other kinds of seeing he has robot eyes he has robot eyes (laughs) did you have anything else um oh yeah um Guinan uh played as we know by Whoopi Goldberg obviously uh is briefly in this episode entirely as a sounding board for Jordy Mm -hmm. that's right it's like hey we love Guinan but she's like not really uh, part of the story she listens. She listens. All right. What okay. else? What, what was the other thing we watched? All right. Okay. We also watched Elogium Voyager Season 2, Episode 4, which first aired September 18th, 1995, four days after my 11th birthday. <laughs> it was written by Kenneth Biller and Jerry Taylor, a woman. Neelix picks a fight with Kess in the mess hall after observing her arrive and chat casually with Tom Paris. The bridge crew becomes aware of a space-dwelling creature and decides to investigate. Neelix interrupts Kess, who is binge-eating, to surprise her with flowers and apologize for his behavior. She reveals that she has been eating dirt and beetles, and Neelix drags her off to sickbay. Neelix becomes enraged that the doctor won't include him in Kess's medical evaluation. 
Kess's condition worsens, and she eventually admits that she knows what's happening. She is in elogium, or some combination of puberty and heat, which only occurs once in an Okampa's lifetime, although hers is years too early. We are reminded that she is not yet two years old, you guys. <laughs> Neelix must decide if he wants to impregnate her. The rest of the episode focuses on investigating the space whales and Neelix fretting over whether he is ready to be a father, which he decides he is. Finally, Kess discusses her own feelings with the doctor. She is not ready to be a mom. The ship escapes the space whales courtesy of Chakotay's insight into animal mating behavior, and Kess and Neelix discuss having a child in the future since her elogium may have been false. The episode is bookended by Janeway and Chakotay discussing whether they can or should stop the crew from hooking up, and Janeway realizes that they might need some babies to run the ship before they make it home, which, yeah, because it's going to take like 75 years, you guys. (laughs) They're all like in their mid-30s. Ensign Wildman is pregnant, luckily enough. Other intertractions? Neelix talks disparagingly of the doctor as a hologram who shouldn't be telling flesh-and-blood people what to do. Neelix views having a son and having a daughter as very different enterprises, but Tuvok disagrees strongly, and Chakotay is portrayed as an expert in pacifism and animal mating rituals. (laughs) Because of course he is. Right. It's like, he's Native American, he knows things about the animals and the plants and the fucking well oh yeah i mean i i saw pocahontas <laughs> uh, he has a preternatural understanding of peace and animals right of course and nature i just imagine Takote has colors of the wind like, <laughs> playing in his head the whole like his whole life yeah, yeah. well okay so like if i was 11 Pocahontas came out recently, so I imagine that the writers of this episode also imagined that about Chakotay. They're like, we saw Pocahontas. We know how this works. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. And also stay tuned towards the end of the episode, because after we get done talking about these toxic masculinity tropes, we will definitely discuss space whales. Yes. <laughs> Totally by accident, both of these episodes had some space whales. Yeah, I love it. Accidental overlap. Oh, <laughs> oh man. All right. So, so where do we where do we start? Yeah. So about Jordy. So you met a computer simulated female? Yeah, but not an ordinary computer simulated female. I mean, she was brilliant, of course, but <sighs> warm. Friendly. And it was like we worked as one. It was just so comfortable. You know, Jordy, everybody falls in love with a fantasy every now and then. Uh, no, no, kind of see, you've got it all wrong. I'm not necessarily expecting anything romantic here. It's just, I know whatever. The Abrams and I are going to be good friends. I, can I just, like, list all the things he did that yeah. made me feel uncomfortable? Totally. First of all, he keeps calling her Leah, mm-hmm. when she never once says, call me Leah. He should be calling her Dr. Brahms. Mm-hmm. Um, also, throughout the episode, they say Leah and Leah, and it's confusing. Yes. I'll just note that. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a director error. Like, everyone just memorized their lines and showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he won't let her finish her sentences. When she's trying to talk, he just sort of interjects over her and doesn't give her space to, like, express herself. Um, When she comes over for the what is clearly a a pseudo-date to his quarters, he she's like, oh, you're not wearing uniform, you put on music, and he's like, I wanted to make you feel more comfortable. And it's like, all of that would make me feel extremely uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And what, he wanted to feel more comfortable. Yeah. I, <sighs> he wanted to set a mood, and it definitely yeah. wasn't a co-worker's putting together an agenda mood. No. Which was the pretext under which he got her to his quarters in the first place. Yes. And it's, that like, don't do that. <laughs> Sorry. Heavy sides. <laughs> yeah, heavy heavy sides. There's just, like, one other note is that there's a point in time when uh, he and Dr. Brahms are in engineering, and he, like, mansplains about the engine that she designed. Oh my god, yeah, I forgot about that. 
<laughs> yeah, that was an issue. <laughs> anyway, it's just like, just a little, little bit, but it's just like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Believe in her ability to um, know her own work. I also, just earlier in the episode... It's, it's almost like they want to pull the rug out under the audience, too. Like, the audience has been hoping that Jordy could meet this real woman. Mm-hmm. And then even when they're yelling at each other, because she shows up and she's not, in fact, friendly and warm, as he described her to Guinan, but um, cold and uh, angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, she says to him, like, when they first meet, basically... So you're the one who fouled up my engine designs. Right, but this is but this is still in line with a romance media trope of like mm. now they're going to be at each other's throats until they understand each other and then they're going to make out. So you as the audience are still kind of like this could be going somewhere. Mm. You know, like I've seen Indiana Jones. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. but but no, in fact, she is she is not having it and, and she shouldn't. Are there other things that were creepy behavior? Yeah, mostly just he kept commenting on her appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he like, at one point, he's like, you changed your hair. And she's like, wait, what do you mean I changed my hair since yesterday? And he's like, no, no. Um, I just like saw the picture in your file. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, I wear it differently now. But he's but he's saying this, he's like kind of leaning over her from behind. It's like... Oh, yeah. And so I'm left with like one of two thoughts. Either Jordy is a complete idiot because he keeps tripping up and thinking that he really knows her. Which I'm like, how how would that even happen? Unless he's like playing this uh, program all the time and like they're hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like anyone would know like that's the last thing you want to do if you're trying to let this develop. So and he, yet he keeps messing up. So he's either, or he's just super creepy and like very arrogant. Well, I think going back to the notion of this being within the nice guy trope, it makes more sense to read it as he's like bumbling and he doesn't know what to do in this situation. One of the reasons that the nice guy trope and like nice guy behavior is so problematic is that it's not genuine. Right. Like his his interactions with her are awkward because there's a subtext that she has no idea about. Mm-hmm. And while he's ostensibly a kind and somewhat romantically clueless person and like as audience members we care about Jordy and we we like want him to have you know good things happen to him including romantically and this is late this is in like season 6 uh i think it's uh season 4 season 4 okay but we're pretty invested in Jordy at this point as audience members mm, absolutely yeah the nice guy is like i'll help you with your lawn mowing or whatever and be the shoulder that you cry on when the asshole boyfriend dumps you and then that's my moment right yeah it has strategy behind it yes it has motivation behind it that is like i said before not genuine yeah and she can sense that right no she can sense that because because so many people try this strategy Mm -hmm. instead of just being upfront about their desires Mm -hmm. women have like this fine-tuned radar Hmm. Which you have to have up in every male friendship to be like, when is it coming at me? Is this a dangerous situation? Am I going to be in an awkward situation? What do they mean when they're inviting me over to their quarters? Because at some a certain point, he says, I th- was hoping that we would become friends, good friends. Mm-hmm. He never once says, I was hoping we'd hook up. I was mm-hmm. hoping that we'd date. And she's like, oh, I thought you knew I'm married. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. She, it's like so obvious to her because he never wants, he only ever uses the word friend. Mm-hmm. And she fucking knows. Oh, yeah. There's another point, and they're having a conversation, and she's like, Yeah, I'm not really good at socializing. She says something along the lines of, I always found like engines were easier to interact with than people. And he responds with, Well, maybe you just haven't right, met the right people yet Mm -hmm. where it's clear that he's he's thinking right person right he's like yeah now you've met me i'm your person let's get this going and she's she thinks she's there for a business meeting yeah no and she knows and she leaves yeah she's like i gotta go 
And also he's completely wrong, right? Because she's married. Mm-hmm. So her introversion and her discomfort with all people in general is not has not been solved by her finding a romantic partner. Yeah, socially <laughs> awkward people get married every day. A lot of them also work as engineers. Yeah. Yes. So the holodeck characterization of her being like warm and friendly and personable or whatever is not accurate to her personality. And it's one of the things that trips Jordy up in the beginning where he's like, oh, you're not interacting with me the way that I expected you to. And it's like all on him for having any expectations in the first place. Right. Yeah, I think you brought up another good point, which is why is the fact that she is married... I mean, what does that have to do with anything? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a good way... We all know it's a good way to shut men down. Mm -hmm. By the time she says it, it is very obvious that she needs to shut him down. Mm -hmm. And then he seems to be kind of, like, disappointed and... I think he says to Guinan later, like, why didn't the computer tell me she was married? Right. But, like, no. <laughs> yeah. That is not the obstacle here. Like, the obstacle is you've fallen in love with a woman who you don't know. Mm-hmm. Never met. Never met. And then you meet her ex- expecting, A, expecting her to, ha- to have the personality she did in the program, which she doesn't, and uh, B, just operating with this over-familiarity to her, like... Um, he mentions music that she he knows she likes. He mentions food that he knows she likes. Like, it's as though he did a really deep Google dive mm-hmm. before a date. Mm-hmm. Or before, like, it, it kind of made me think of Facebook stalking yeah, in modern it's, ages. It's stalkery. It's stalkery. Yeah. yeah, but it's like, you know, we all have Facebook accounts. They used to be filled with our likes and dislikes. And then you run into someone and just casually mention a band you know they like from Facebook. Mm-hmm. I mean... So, not me necessarily, <laughs> but maybe. Yeah, no. And you could. That, that and totally it, happens. And when is it too creepy? Yeah. Um, yeah, when it, like when does it tip over into creepy? Well, I think that one, one of the ways that it feels really creepy to me is that there's a number of opportunities for him to tell her that he's created this program. Yeah. And I think that if he had told her up front about it all of this conflict could have been avoided yeah because it's it's an intelligent she was about to commend him when she like went to the holodeck to find this program for having a really good idea of having a holodeck version of the original engine yes to refer back to yeah and in fact she's on the ship at all not just i mean once she's there it's very clear that her idea is to look at the discrepancy like all the changes that he's made to the engines but picard presents it as though oh they're so interested in how well you've been doing as an engineer Mm -hmm. that and how well the ship's doing that they want to take a look at it right and she gets a little protective and is like now we need to look at every single thing that you've changed but at, at first it was a good thing and he even with hollow Brahms's help realigns I wrote this down because I'm not good at the techno babble um something about lattice structures yeah it's um if I reoriented the crystals into a lattice shape which was going to be introduced um in the next uh the next class of ships Mm mm-hmm So I think you're right that he could have told her at the outset that the reason he's excited to meet her is because he met a holodeck version of her that helped him work through some really difficult engine problems. And he did this because he's a fan of her work. You should know this. And I think the reason that he didn't is because he knows that it was inappropriate. He, Mm -hmm. He knows that he took it too far. And he thinks that he can, I don't know, somehow trick her into falling for him. I don't know about tricking her, but, like, he's, like, this is my time. This is my chance. There's this woman who I have entire mental construct about who she is. And he keeps being, like, well, I know that we're going to at least be friends. But it's clear through his actions that he wants more than friendship. And, yes. like, in a lot of ways, but going back a little bit to the to that she's married, like, his dis- the disappointment on his face when she reveals that, is just like, okay, there's no question here that you were hoping that you would have a romantic relationship. Yeah. Not what you hope for, huh? Hope? Guinan, the woman is about as friendly as a circassian plague cat. Only cares about her work. Hates what I've done to her engines. 
And to top it all off, she's married. Computer never even told me she was married. Computer glitch? Must have been. So what originally motivated me to propose this episode is the scene in the episode where Dr. Brahms is on the holodeck. She is like met hollow Brahms and listened to the holodeck character's mini speech, which goes something like, um, I'm with you every day, Jordy. Every time you touch the engine, you're touching me. And of course, oh. she gets this like totally understandable, creeped out reaction where it's like her conclusion is that Jordy has been like using an image and a replica of her as a holodeck sex doll. Mm-hmm. And she's like super angry and mm-hmm. yells at him and mm-hmm. makes some cogent points, even though she has done so in a raised voice. Um, about the inappropriate nature of creating a holodeck program character that resembles her, and she says she's been violated. It's not like that. I swear. I'm outraged by this. I have been invaded, violated. How dare you use me like this? How far did it go, anyway? Was it good for you? Nothing like that happened. It was a professional collaboration. Oh, I can tell. And so she's understandably angry. And then Jordy gets like super defensive and he's like, you haven't been nice to me ever since you stepped on board. I just wanted to be friends. I thought we could be friends. Like nothing of the things that you think happened happened, which is not actually true because we went back and we watched the scene from the episode where this holodeck character uh, was originally created. And she, and they kiss. They kiss. They kiss. Yeah. They kiss. And he's like, that's not what was happening at all. Like, we were working on a problem. Yeah. Which, you know, they were. Yeah, well, sure. And then they fell in love over fixing the engine. Right. He's like, he's in love with this holodeck version of her. And he's super stoked on meeting her for real, which I don't think even if she weren't married, it would be appropriate for him to have created this hologram. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sub question. Uh Why can holodeck characters be based on real people at all? Like this comes up in uh, the Broccoli episode. (laughs) This comes up many times in, uh, in Voyager and in other episodes where you think people are having real discussions with real people, and then it's like, computer and program. And you're like, oh, that wasn't real. Like, she's right to feel violated. And like, why isn't that just generally like a violation? Much less like a person you don't even know. You could just be like, computer, create program of person I can discuss with. Like some totally invented physical characteristics and, and mannerisms and whatever. I, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there's potentially like a sort of mild explanation and then there's the like least generous read which is that it's a convenient way for people to play out their like fantasies about certain others and yeah I mean but you know where this would go in like the black mirror universe like everybody would just be like fucking and raping and murdering yeah, uh, and to get to get all their feelings out. Oh, um, for sure. There's that Buffy episode where there's a robot version of Buffy oh, yeah. that one of the creepy nerds has created. That's like a sex toy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that episode of the Magician. I was waiting for Mar-Gola. you to say that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The Margolem. The Margot Golem. <laughs> Um, where they, they build a fake version of her. Yeah. Um, because she breaks up with him. Right. Uh, by the way, we love the magicians. Check it out. <laughs> but I think the thing that, that enrages me the most about this episode is in their, like, denouement, they are in 10 forward, and she apologizes to him for yeah. getting, for, like, having a feeling about this whole situation, which is creepy and gross. I mean, to his credit, he's like, no, you shouldn't be apologizing. That's true. But still. But she still does, and he does not. He 
it like he never says the words I'm sorry. He does not apologize for um for creating this program ever. He's super defensive about creating it. He's like, well, we were working together to solve a problem. Like I had every right to do this, blah, 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 blah. I'm only guilty of offering you friendship. Exactly. And And he's still lying. And he's still, yeah. Because she doesn't even watch the end of the program. Right. He doesn't apologize for setting up this entire scenario, being a creeper. He... He barely acknowledges that her reaction was appropriate, that Mm -hmm. she was justified to Mm -hmm. be upset about it because it was a violation. Mm -hmm. And instead, she's just like, oh, I'm sorry, I uh, overreacted. And I just, like, I am so fucking tired of women apologizing for expressing anger that is appropriate to the situation. Yes. So that's why we yeah. are talking about this episode. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think it's interesting. Like, I almost wonder, where does the episode come down on this? You know? Mm-hmm. You know? Because he, he is being inappropriate. He's being a dum-dum. Um, Guinan keeps warning him. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, he comes to Guinan at the beginning and he's like, so you created a computer-simulated female. And he's like, what? No. <laughs> And then later on, she's like, you were seeing what you wanted to see. Gaiden keeps sort of expressing the things that we want Leah to express until Mm -hmm. she finally does. Mm -hmm. So you're like, okay, there is that voice here. But then ultimately, she apologizes to him and it was a big misunderstanding. And Mm -hmm. and like, they're going to be friends now because they saved the space whale together. Yeah. Oh, the space whale. Yeah, and it's like poor Jordy falling in love with a married woman. He like, he just has the worst luck. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the episode is particularly sympathetic to her being hit on in her workplace. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, and that's another thing. He does it very carefully. It's it's so plausibly deniable the whole time. Right. Well, this is like, this pretext uh, to get her to her quarters is another thing that drives me crazy and happens all the time. It's very prevalent in the venture capital world, for example, should a female founder try to seek venture capital money from a male VC, she's highly likely to end up at dinner or drinks and there's a undertone of this like quid pro quo negotiation. I'm I'm the big man with the money. I'll give you some of it if you Give me your pussy. And it's just like... Yeah, no, and I, Natalie Portman was recently talking about how, like, as a teenage actress, she was at dinner with a producer, which is a thing you apparently have to do mm-hmm. and is totally normal. And, uh, like, he put his hand on her leg and was like, you have to make the first move. She did nothing and somehow got out of that situation okay. But she was just constantly, like, that is a workplace environment. She was being sexualized and she was underage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, so it's in the tech industry, it's in the entertainment industry. Uh, and at, I mean, at the same time, like, I've had dinner with male coworkers and that's something you want to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So it's like benefit of the doubt you go. <laughs> like, what do you, like, what do you do? And, um, and ideally it actually turns out that it's a congenial interaction between coworkers where you're you know you're either discussing work or you're forming interpersonal bonds which make your work environment more pleasant yeah and it's social hard. lubrication exactly it's harder to do that as a woman interacting with male colleagues because you never know if there's this um unspoken uh, attempt to get to get you into bed and I mean like the the worst examples of this which I've heard about like from people who've experienced is um, you go to dinner with a co-worker or somebody who's like you're trying to ask to be a mentor or something they slip a drug into your drink and you wake up hours later in a bed that isn't yours without your underwear on. It's, it really happens. Yeah. And it's horrifying. Yeah. And so 
we end up being on the defensive about this all the time and it makes it another reason that it is harder for women to advance in their careers because the gatekeepers are more often than not male and you don't know if you're gonna have to be on guard for some creepy up to rapey behavior, right? Yeah. This made me think of something else I wanted to talk about in this. First of all, you made a really excellent point and I have nothing to add to it. I kind of, and I wonder where Picard is in all this. He's he's dealing with space whales. Right, yeah. Like Jordy's like the head of his department. Yeah. No, No one's looking over his shoulder. So there's this guy, Barkley, and... He created, to my former point, why do they have this technology? Why is this allowed? He created like duplicates of basically all the main characters of TNG and then interacts with them in like super weird situations that range from like besting people in a duel to like sex fantasies uh, in the holodeck on like a regular basis. Like Uh to the point where, and everyone is like, this guy should get fired. And Jordy's like, let me handle this. Like, I get it, Reg. You know, I fell in love in the holodeck once. And, like, that episode falls, like, somewhere between the original Jordy Leah Brahms episode and this one. Mm. And given his emotional experience falling in love with the holodeck character, he takes sympathy upon what Reginald Berkeley is doing and, like, protects him from the organization looking into his inappropriate workplace behavior. Mm-hmm. Men protecting men. Yeah, yeah. Forgiving... <sighs> each other for inappropriate behavior because they have also been guilty of that same inappropriate behavior. Yes. If I did it, yes. it can't be bad. Yeah, there's no awareness of what the um, impact of that behavior is. It's only like, like no, no, they're I so know focused. my motivations and so Right, on. they're so focused on the intention. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to talk about other characters who've fallen in love on the holodeck. Commander Riker... Yep. Fell in love with a hologram Minuet. robot. Minuet. Minuet. Uh, I actually really like that episode, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's really good. Also problematic. Sure. <laughs> um, Captain Janeway mm-hmm. falls in love with one, maybe two holodeck characters. Harry Kim falls in love with an alien pretending to be a holodeck character who herself falls in love with Tuvok. <laughs> And then just Quark sexing up DS9 by offering hollow programs and hollow sweets to everyone, which is uh, essentially a brothel. I think I think that the DS9 crew originally is not allowed to go to the hollow sweets for that reason, (laughs) um, if I recall correctly. But yeah, there's a lot of questionable behavior around the holodeck, and it is a technology like, you know, in any technology really. There's upsides and ways that it can be used for good and there's downsides and ways that it can be used in really inappropriate and horrifying ways. It's actually like kind of the entire underlying exploration of Westworld. And one mm. of the reasons I don't like it so much is that it's like being on the holodeck all the time mm-hmm. but gory and rapey and etc. I... <laughs> Love Westworld. And I think we should revisit it if we ever end up talking about hologram rights. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) I also just wanted to talk about how uh, Jordy's portrayal as a nice guy from a sympathetic lens is linked to the fact that he's a black man mm. and that we are we are viewing this from like a white supremacist society mm-hmm. and the other way they could have written Jordy is Jordy could have had a girlfriend Jordy could have had several girlfriends Jordy could have been commander Riker and mm-hmm. had sex with every single person on every planet he landed on and instead we end up with this character who's like basically neutered mm-hmm. um because he's hapless and we mm-hmm. we feel empathy for him and we want him to hook up with people but it just never fucking happens yeah and i think that that you brought this up in relationship to harry kim who Mm -hmm. also like has this character trait of nice guy in a lot of ways who is also a person of color Mm -hmm. and um it's yeah it's the the white men get to be suave and debonair and the people of color get to be hapless and unlucky in love yeah, and I would I would even add, add Dr. Bashir into that. Mm. He falls in and out of the nice guy trope, and at a certain point in DS9, he is getting laid a lot, but 
for the first few seasons, definitely he's he's just constantly chasing Jadzia and is portrayed as being really bad at romance. Um, and he's Arab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Casual racism. Ca- yeah. So so like from the perspective of the writers, this is a big problem. Um, from the perspective of them being real people, it still doesn't excuse the way they treat women. Mm-hmm. Like if we're in universe, but like out of universe, it's a problem that the only people they're writing this way are the non-white men. Yeah, exactly. Hence why we are intertractional because we get to look at this from various angles, both imagining that these characters are real people and understanding that they are written by other human beings who also have biases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that that covers what I wanted to talk about from this episode. Do we want to take a quick break for a sponsor? Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Break um, time. You know, take off your... Do you love the city? Do you love soccer? Do you love helping others? So do we. San Francisco City Football Club is the supporter-owned soccer team in San Francisco, and we believe soccer should be built by and for the community. A sports team has a greater mission than just the game. It is to do good through the game. Our soccer club and our fans donate their time, money, and talents to helping those in need both here and around the world. SF City brings people together to enjoy the beautiful game at historic Kizar Stadium in the heart of San Francisco, the most beautiful city in the world. Become a part of the city and support affordable, democratic, community-driven sports entertainment in San Francisco. To find out more, visit us at sfcityfc.com. Woohoo! Soccer fans! <laughs> soccer time! Soccer fun! Woo! <laughs> Welcome back from our break. That <laughs> may have been like literally no seconds at all, but whatever. We're we'll, back. We'll find out when we produce this. You guys already know what happened, but we don't yet. <laughs> Podcasting is time travel. Yeah. I don't know that there's a good transition into the um, Elogium episode. I think um, the the toxic masculinity trope that Neelix displayed is a lot different than the nice guy trope. Do you want to talk about it? Um. So in the spirit of, of continuing to, to out ourselves and our perspective, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this episode is um, I dated a guy who was emotionally abusive. Hmm. So, Neelix bugs the shit out of me. Yeah. Like, uh... In this episode... So much! In in a number of other episodes, he's really possessive of Cass. Mm -hmm. He is controlling. Mm -hmm. He uses his jealousy to control her behavior. Mm -hmm. And hugely creepy she's one and a half she's one and a half years old which i feel like is um something that's talked a lot now in fan groups on the internet just like yes or yes is neelix a pedophile and then people are like no she's he's she's not because she has her body and also they live to be nine and she's clearly like at least an adolescent at this point except then we find out in this episode uh that she's going through puberty right now yeah. Or she's, well... Hmm. But but maybe she's going through her heat. She's going through her one and only heat, which is kind of a ridiculous conceit for an entire race of people that, like, a female can only reproduce one time in her entire life and you have to jump on it, like, right then. It's yeah. just... Well, it makes you understand why they needed an omnipotent caretaker. Right. Throughout this episode, uh, Neelix, like refers to Kess as innocent and naive. Oh, yeah. So, sorry. No, go, yeah. go ahead. So one of the things that I thought it would be helpful to do is, even though we already recapped the plot, let's just go through one by one everything that Neelix does in this episode and how fucked up it mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, first there, she and Tom are, like, carrying some plants, and he's immediately, like, just short with her. She's like, oh, there's a beetle on the plant. And he's like, that's nice for the beetle. And he's just, like, being a total dick. Yeah, he's he's having a jealous reaction to seeing Kes literally just walk next to Tom. And they're having, like, 
a congenial interaction. He starts out by being like passive aggressive about this beetle and whatever else. And then finally he comes out and says that, that like, he says, you're such an innocent. You're such an innocent. I see the way he looks at you. I used to look at women that way. I know what it means. So he's, he's like inferring a lot of intention behind Tom's behavior, which we later learn Tom kind of does have a crush on Kess, but he understands sure. that she's in a committed relationship. Right, and the only thing that he's picking up on is Tom's desire for Kess. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not picking up on anything inappropriate about Tom's actions. Or right? hers. Or hers. And, like, the way in which he says, you're such an innocent, it sounds like he's saying you're such an idiot. Mm -hmm. Like, there's such vehemence in his voice. It's really gross. But I, I would venture to say even him just being snippy with her and being a jerk as a way to punish her for talking to a man, even before he explains himself, is in itself abusive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's abusive in that it is an effort to control and limit her behavior. Mm -hmm. So he gets angry when he sees her interact with a man. Mm -hmm. And if she were, I think, if she had less of a strong personality or if she were inclined to acquiesce to whatever his underlying uh, desires are, she would cut off interacting with Tom mm -hmm. and potentially with any other male. This is textbook abusive behavior. Yes. Isolating. Using this like men are dogs kind of notion right. to confine a woman. Right. And I think later she's like, why don't you trust me? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. It's not that I don't trust you. It's that I don't trust him. Mm -hmm. Which which still means that he doesn't trust her. Oh, yeah. Right? No, he still means that he doesn't trust her because he doesn't, like, trust her ability to fend men off or right. something. Right. Or to, yeah, so what, here's what he said. Um, I've seen his kind before. They're all over the galaxy, in fact. They prey on naive, sheltered young women like you. And he says like, that Hello. with no irony whatsoever, despite the fact that this is exactly what he did. Yes. He, he earlier in the episodes admits that he was like, you know, one of these creepy men creeping on right. women. I used to look at women that way. Exactly. And she's only with him because he saved her life from people who were like using her as a slave. So she has just like no perspective. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a relationship that at its root is really unsettling and like I fault Voyager and the writing for making it seem like a great relationship. Like it's presented as like they're definitely in love and they're like committed to spending their lives together and granted her her lifetime is gonna be short mm -hmm. like Neelix will outlive her and he has already lived significantly longer than she ever will it's and that power differential like even if let's say she's 20 or some shit that power differential where he's always able to look at her and be like you don't know i've been around more than you i've seen more than you i know how people behave like that's attractive to him he he wants to be in that role of it's it's almost parental Mm -hmm. And it's creepy because of that. Because it's parental and it's sexual. I it just... reminds me of, um, yeah, I'm just going to say, it, rem it reminds me of a character in the Woody Allen movie, Hannah and Her Sisters. Mm, I mean... <laughs> Which, okay, Woody Allen, just bracketing that, there's a character played by, I think, Michael Caine, who's just like, he's a professor and he's dating someone who dropped out of college. Mm. And is always giving her books to read. And then when she wants to go out and do things without him, he's like, am I not enough for you? Am I not interesting enough for you? Like, don't you think I'm the one educating you? Like, isn't that enough? And it's like, ooh, gross. Yuck. Yeah, he gets to have a whole life outside of his relationship with her. But should she dare to do something without him, he gets, like, extremely jealous and control. This happens, it's a trope that happens over and over again. And it's, it's like this... The controlling, jealous boyfriend. I don't know if that's the actual term for this particular trope, but it's how I, like, sure. think of it. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so then he shows up with flowers, mm -hmm. um, which is also 
By the way, like textbook abusive behavior, like you can just look up cycle of abuse. I, this is something I read about in law school when we were learning about battered woman syndrome. You know, the next phase, like, so there's a conflict and then there's a resolution and a honeymoon period, which proceeded with gifts and like loveliness and, and the person acts like, you know, I know what I did was bad and I'll never do it again. And so he is aware that he fucked up. He brings some flowers, which if I hadn't already thought that he was being abusive, that solidified it. Women be aware, be wary of flowers. <laughs> like, unless it's your birthday. <laughs> yeah, this like, I can solve my bad behavior with gifts mm -hmm. is, I don't know, I think it's culturally taught. What's taught to men is you can get forgiven if you just get a gift. And what's taught to women is that they should be willing to forgive having received that gift. Yeah. And it doesn't ever address the actual behavior that needs to be changed. Oh God, I'm just realizing right now that I bring people gifts when I'm late. <laughs> um, I'll think about that. <laughs> Moving forward. Uh, yeah, I mean like, okay. On the topic of gifts, I think that giving gifts is a beautiful thing and I would like people to bring me flowers. I don't want people to bring me flowers in lieu of an actual apology and an attempt to change their behavior when it needs to be changed. Yeah. Yeah, like have the conversation first, change your behavior, and then surprise her with flowers. Yeah, or just decouple those two things. Uh, just, I just want to add that she eats the flowers. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's fantastic. She's like scarfing down um, mashed potatoes with dirt in them and like all these other bowls, which when he brings her quarters, she like tries to hide and then he discovers them. And then he like, he carries her off while she's biting these flowers to go to sickbay because she definitely needs to go to sickbay. She de yeah, and I had such a mixed reaction to that because I'm like, okay, she should not be eating dirt. She needs to go to sickbay. But then also I'm like, he cares about what she's eating. He's physically carrying her and like in the context of his other bad boyfriend behavior, I'm like, this is not a good look. Yeah, and then as soon as he gets her to medical bay, he's like in the doctor's face so much that the doctor like can't do the assessment he ultimately like kicks Neelik out of sickbay so that he can do the work it's yeah this... no he's a doctor yeah yeah no he definitely is extremely attached to Cass and like views himself as her caretaker and mm -hmm. like cannot accept anyone else as her caretaker even if it's a doctor yeah and... he can't envision being like not being there to make sure that she's okay because yeah. he's the only one right do we want to talk about how freaked out he is at the idea that he has to have a kid and um, and then his sort of like myopic oh, yeah. perspective on fatherhood? Yeah. One of the things that I struggled with watching with this episode is that like two thirds of the time spent with anxiety around this once in a lifetime ability to reproduce focus on Neelix. And Gus gets a monologue like towards the end of the episode about the considerations that go into becoming a mother. But Neelix begins his emotional arc with, oh, I, I never thought about having kids, which is oh a thing that God. women can never do. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's never once thought about having children. Yeah. And then, and then he, he like proceeds like, well, what would I do with a kid? I guess having a son would be fun because I could teach him survival skills and I could teach him the things that I know and I could teach him about seducing women. I'm pretty sure he says something he, like that. Yeah, maybe not in those exact words, but he does say to that effect. And he's talking to Tuvok and he and Tuvok have a conversation about having children because Tuvok has kids. Tuvok, the voice of reason, is like, I give my attention to all of my children equally, regardless of their gender. And, and says all of those skills would be things that would be helpful to a daughter as well. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yay feminist Vulcans, or at least feminist Tuvok. Yes. Um, and then, like... At the end of the episode where Kes comes to him and says, well, my illusion's over, but the doctor says it was probably false, so I should be able to have kids in a couple years. 
Neelix is like, oh, good. I was getting really excited about having a daughter. And she says, oh, or, or it could be a son. And he's like, no, I want to have a daughter who looks just like you. And it's just Which like... presumably would look like her after like six months, right? Oh, sh- it would be like a fully grown. <laughs> yeah. Maybe with some like spots on her forehead yeah. or something. They probably wouldn't give her like. They wouldn't give her the whiskers. <laughs> Maybe they would. I don't know. Uh, I I hope that they would. It would actually be interesting, but they don't. They don't ever reproduce. Thank God. Yeah, I think that like you know, Kess is really hesitant to conceive a child. She's she has a conversation with the doctor about that. He says something about biological urges being very powerful, and that the like the biological urge to reproduce is you know, what keeps species alive. She counters with, well, but isn't that why we have minds? To look beyond biological urges to consider their consequences? And I really like that. Like, she actually has a complicated view around reproducing and, like, wants to take into consideration the ethical implications of uh, bringing a child into the universe. Yeah, no, and I, I like this characterization of Kess, because even though we can get a little squicked out by Neelix dating a person who's not yet two years old, and even though Neelix himself wants to infantilize her, she comes across as like a really thoughtful adult mm-hmm. in the face of other people telling her what to think. Yeah, which I think that like, poten- potentially to Neelix's credit, she is an adult in mind perhaps but not in experience Mm -hmm. like that doesn't erase this like he wants he's her protector Mm -hmm. he wants to shield her innocence yes he technically adult is the best kind of adult (laughs) i want to talk about how he's again uh, shut off from his emotions not talking to her super grumpy sulking because he can't be a father um, which he, you know, brightens up when she's like, maybe you can, but he, he's right. punishing her. He's punishing her for his feelings or mm-hmm. with his feelings or both. Yeah. He's like giving her the cold shoulder or the silent treatment or however you want to frame that. And she does the emotional labor for him where mm-hmm. she's like, Oh, are you okay? Um, you seem angry. And he's like, no, no, I'm fine. And then she's like, well, you know, we can talk about this. It's it, everything's fine because I probably can't have a baby in the future anyway. But the disappointment and once again passive aggressiveness that he demonstrates because he uh, two hours ago decided that he wants to have a kid <laughs> is it's it's this abusive controlling behavior again. And yeah. looking at it from the perspective of the writers' room. I don't think they think that his behavior is abusive at all. No, I think they think he's being jealous Mm -hmm. and perhaps unreasonably jealous. Looking forward a few episodes, at at one point, I think Tuvok tells him that jealousy is a normal emotion. And he's like, oh, okay. Or it might be Chakotay. One of the the wiser men on the ship tells him this. Which which is fair. And it's, it's not... It's not his jealousy that I take issue with. It's what he does with it and who he puts it on. He puts it on her. He does not put it on himself. Mm -hmm. Later, as it escalates, like, he attacks Tom and then apologizes to Tom. Oh, that's right. There's a whole... He and Tom get into a food fight. That whole episode is from the perspective of he's got to solve this with Tom. Mm -hmm. It's not... He never gets to solve it with Kess. Yeah, it removes... Her agency from from the interaction entirely, where he's like, I have to stop this man from moving in on my sweet, innocent little... Sweeting. He doesn't believe that she has the ability to rebuke his, like, Tom's advances or whatever. And it's just like, it's... It just, like, She should get to have agency here, and she just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, she should break up with him just for acting like this and then go date Tom Paris because that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah. I mean... But or we... Harry Kim. Or Harry Kim. Someone should date Harry Kim. Somebody should date Harry Kim. Let's see. I don't think I have anything other... Like, anything more that I want to say necessarily about um, Kess and Neelix's relationship. 
but I definitely want to touch quickly on the um, overlap of both of these episodes have space whales. Yes. Which neither in... They never call them space whales in either of the episodes, but they obviously are. And that's one of the things where I'm like, why does nobody call them space whales? Yeah. Um, but, but more than that, in the Voyager Just... episode, there's like a large member of the species and there's very few of them. And there's a lot of tiny members of the species. And they immediately gender the larger member of the species as male. Oh, and they I'm did? Like, oh, no, that's backwards. Yeah, and I'm like, obviously, oh. that like, would be the female because they're behaving a lot like, like ants or bees or whatever. And having a lot of male genetic material available and like breeding females is is a lot more likely than the other way around. Yeah, um, no. Sperm and egg. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And they even look like sperm a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, like, yeah. that that little little thing just is like, ugh. Well, they think, they think that it's male because it starts fighting with Voyager. Sure. And so they're like, oh, aggression is male. Because they views Voyager as a, a rival mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it could oh, yeah, just it doesn't, as easily... Yeah, it doesn't track. I think it could just as easily be that there's a, an aggressive female that doesn't want her, you know, her drones from being seduced away by a different queen bee. And then the, the space whale in The Next Generation is pregnant and they kill it, and then they do the C-section in order to get the baby out, which, like, that's a lot of logical leaps about a creature that they have literally just encountered. Mm-hmm. But it works. They shouldn't have shot it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, man. shot it. Picard's face, though, when <laughs> they realize that they killed this creature is, like, why they hired a Shakespearean actor. Oh, it's yeah, he's so played. good. It's really beautifully played. He's so good. But, yeah, I'm just, like, I I like the notion of large creatures that can uh, survive in space. I'm really into Farscape, where the, <laughs> the characters, like, live inside of a living being that is also basically a space whale. That's what happens in Farscape? Yeah. Farscape's <laughs> wild. I don't know. It's, it's, it's worth watching. Oh, There's man. puppets. It's great. Okay. Um, but yeah, so there's that, and I just thought it was funny that, like, we kind of picked these two episodes that just both happen to have these space-faring creatures yeah. that, um... <laughs> Do they have warp capability? Do they have warp capability? That's a good question. Oh, and then Chakotay, like, infers a lot about their mating habits from whole cloth, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like when you're on the bridge, like, anything goes. It's like, okay, the thing we're doing isn't working. Let's try a different thing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not a bad tactic in any situation. Yeah. I do appreciate that he voices this notion that maybe... Um, meeting aggression with aggression isn't the right tactic and recommends demonstrating some submissiveness instead, which is effective to get the space whale from to stop ramming Voyager. But I think it's interesting that he's the voice of kind of pacifism in his relationship with Janeway, at least here, but I think it comes up at other times too, which it's not oh, yeah. explicitly like relying on his Native American heritage, but other points in the series it definitely is called out. And I think that they give him, him in particular, this characterization, um, which feels kind of like a, a little bit of tokeny. Yeah, it feels tokeny. I mean, especially considering that the explicit background that we have on him is that he was a terrorist, mm-hmm. right? That he or left... a guerrilla fighter, depending on how you feel about the Maquis. <laughs> right, but they were okay. Sure. Terrorist, girl, a fighter. It's all a matter of perspective. You know, there could be noble terrorists, like, uh, not, I mean, in fiction. Like, I've seen Star Wars. Like, they were technically terrorists. Yeah. Or rebels. 
Yeah, they're rebels. They're rebels. But yeah, no, but he was a fighter, right? Like he was in Starfleet and then he joined the Maquis. They explicitly used violent memes. Yeah, that's true. So so we have got that guy asking people to be peaceful all the time. Mm-hmm. Definitely Chakotay's characterization is something that we will talk about in future episodes because I think it's fascinating and there's a lot, a lot there, but we are out of time for this episode. <laughs> Uh, welcome back to Subspace Transmissions Log, our very exciting interactive corner of the podcast where we do things like shout out to John in New York and Jaro Stredge. Thank you both so much for reviewing us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. Y'all are awesome. You're winning the game. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if you want to hear your name on the podcast, you can do the same. <laughs> I love Ryan's, like, sexy voice. You get our sexy voice if you uh, leave a review. You will hear more of my radio voice if you leave a review. (laughs) Also, thanks to Nick in our Facebook group. He posted, I'm looking forward to y'all's takes on the magics of Megas 2. Who else has episodes they're looking forward to a discussion of? Uh, Which is an awesome question. We definitely want to know this from all of our listeners. Go join the conversation there. For example, Joshua suggested the city on the edge of forever. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, Jesse suggested the Jordy snafu with Leia Brahms, which we just did. Thanks for, uh, you know, you read our minds. Jesse, you're awesome. We love you. I'm like very into this being a conversation that does not just happen between me and Ryan. So keep leaving your comments. Keep leaving your reviews. Also, thank you to the people who came out to our Star Trek The Motion Picture viewing party. Yes. We had a really fun time and we wanted to leave you with a couple post big screen viewing thoughts. Oh my god. Okay, so first of all, the movie is much, much better on the big screen. It's true. Uh, There were all kinds of details I hadn't noticed before, like all the floating people in spacesuits that were like (laughs) floating around the Enterprise when it was in space dock. Uh Uh, just Just like lots of tiny details that were too small that you can see very well on the big screen, but Mm -hmm. you cannot really see on your TV. And like, I have a normal size TV. Like I wasn't watching this on my computer. Yeah, it was great. I really appreciated having like the ability to actually see all of the extras in their costumes. I got like a much better feel about what the world was like supposed to look like. And it definitely explains why Leah's outfit is the way it is. Because people are walking around in like tunics and like one lady you saw had a gold bra that was like all she was wearing on top. Yeah, she was just wearing like a gold bra with jeans. I was like, okay, that was her shirt. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And I'm like, I'm very into the aesthetic. Despite it being like very beige, Mm -hmm. um, which was a word that I took from an io9 article that came out like within the same period of time that we released our episode because like everybody's talking about the motion picture right now. It was very 70s. Like I felt... Like, I felt like the the color palette was very Everlane, Mm. which in itself is sort of a weird, like, modern, futuristic 70s throwback. Totally. Yeah. Also, uh, I there was about an hour and twenty minutes into the film, I was like, okay, now I'm bored. And I looked, at which point I hadn't fallen asleep. <laughs> yeah, I looked over at Becca, and she was just fully asleep. Um, but you know, substance free and on my TV, I was bored way sooner. We saw the film as it was intended, mm-hmm. and it was better. And I apologize for hating on it so much. I mean, it continues to be beautiful. Like, the visual effects and the visuals of the film and the fact that they had just, like, piles of money to give to extras makes a big difference. Oh, there's a scene that, like, comes across on the big screen in the middle of the film. And there's, like, a ton of people in this room all packed into this auditorium. They're very multicultural, very kind of 50-50 gender real. And then there's... A Native American couple. Yes. There are two Native Americans with like feathers and beads and like, and a Starfleet uniform. Yeah, it's full on. So I don't know if there's a better way to describe what they're wearing. (laughs) Jury's out on to whether or not that's like really problematic, but it's like nice that there's representation. Yeah, yeah. So if you can catch this movie on the big screen, do that. That's definitely better than watching it on your home uh, home television. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we will see you 
You will hear us. You will hear us again, hopefully. Next time. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. Next week on Intertractional, Michael Burnham, Uhura of our time. We discuss original series episode Plato's Stepchildren and Discovery's Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalisi and Becca Motola-Barnes. Original music by Danny Kafka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. Tell us what you think. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on iTunes. It really makes a big difference. Uh, any, any final thoughts? No.